0: i Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. In the Bible, we encounter a strange phenomenon. Sometimes beings other than Yahweh are called gods. How can we square that with monotheism, the idea that the Father is the only true God? Although most Christians are aware that the Bible calls Jesus God a couple of times, most have never noticed that the scriptures also use the term for Moses, angels, judges of Israel, the divine council, and at least in one place, the king of Israel. What do all of these individuals have in common? Well, they are agents commissioned to do God's will on earth. In this episode, we'll explore the principle of agency so we can better understand Jesus' role as God's supreme representative. Here now is episode 417, part 7 of our One God Overall class, Jesus, God's Agent. Number 7, Jesus, God's Agent. I want to begin by looking at God's messengers, and then I'll look at God's deputies. We're looking at the topic of Jesus as God's agent, but I want to lay some foundation from the Old Testament first. So first up, we have Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, which reads, He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight Why the bush is not burned. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Who is speaking to Moses here? Naturally, we think Well, that's a silly question, Sean. That's obviously God speaking to Moses. He even identifies himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But in fact, when we look at the previous part of that verse, verse two, it says it was an angel. It says, And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And so the angel of the Lord, or angel of Yahweh, Is actually the one in the bush. It's not God. It's an angel. And this is confirmed to us from Acts chapter 7 when Stephen refers back to it. And Stephen says, Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. So, once again, we have an angel. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers. Isn't that something? So it's the angel speaking as if the angel is God. Verse 35, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So God's angel speaks for him. And I think that's just as simple as it is. It seems like there's a lot of confusion on the burning bush and Exodus 3 and God and the angel. Look, the angel, we know from the text, was there. We also know from Stephen looking back on it, was an angel, not actually God himself, the infinite creator of everything in a little bush, right? That makes sense. But what throws people off is that the angel speaks as if the angel is God. The angel says, I am Yahweh, your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so that's very difficult for people because they think, well, this angel is taking these divine prerogatives and claiming these authorities, which are obviously not true. Well, I don't think this is really a problem for the Bible because nobody addresses it. In fact, I think this is just the way it works. Now, some people have claimed, ever since like about a century, a little more than a century after Christ, about 120 years after Christ, we had Christians starting to claim that the angel of the Lord just is Jesus before he was born. Now, my first thought on that is that the Bible never makes this point. Jesus never says, I was the angel of the Lord. I appear to Moses. Jesus could have said that if that's what he wanted to say but he but he didn't. So the Bible never makes that point. So if we are going to make the point that the angel of the Lord is the pre-existent Jesus, that's our point. That's not the Bible's point. And it rests on this idea that the angel of the Lord is a specific individual in all cases. So in Exodus 3:2, we read in the English Standard Version and the angel of the Lord appeared to him. So this this idea of a definite, right? The angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord. And so the theory goes that every time it says the angel of the Lord, it's referring to the same individual. But other translations don't take it in this definite way. For example, the Jewish Publication Society says an angel of the Lord. Robert Alter's translation says and the Lord's messenger. So the word Lord is definite, but the messenger is not. Another, it's a third Jewish these are all Jewish translations, by the way. <laughs> the Shaken Bible says, and Yahweh's messenger. And then the stone Tanakh says, an angel of Hashem appeared to him. So the text does not demand, the Hebrew construction does not demand that this angel is a specific angel of Yahweh. And that is a the same one each time it says the angel of Yahweh. It could just be an angel of Yahweh. And even if it did mean it was definite, that doesn't mean that it's always the same one. So for example, Haggai one thirteen. then Haggai, the messenger of Yahweh, spoke to the people with Yahweh's message. I am with you, declares Yahweh. This phrase here, the messenger of Yahweh, this is talking about the prophet, the human being, we all agree on that. It's exactly the same phrase. In, in the Hebrew, it's angel of Yahweh. It's the same exact phrase used of the angel in the burning bush. Now, Haggai, of course, is a human being, not not a spiritual being, but he's functioning as God's messenger, and notice that when Haggai speaks, he doesn't say, God is with you. He says, I am with you, declares Yahweh. Haggai is actually saying, I am with you, declares Yahweh. And that's this whole idea of an agent, a messenger. Malachi two seven also, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. Wow, it's like God's full battle name there. So this one you think, wow, this, this has really got to be something spectacular. Well, this is not referring to an angel either. This is talking about a priest. And in this case, this priest is called the angel of Yahweh of hosts. So we, we know for sure that this priest is not the same as Haggai. These are different usages, not the same as the burning bush. So that argument doesn't, doesn't hold water that the angel of the Lord is always the same. All right, the fact is, however, that people cannot see God. And we have a number of verses on this topic. It says in Exodus 33 20, God says to Moses, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. First John four twelve, no one has ever seen God. John five thirty seven, the Father, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. John 6.46, not that anyone has seen the Father. And 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. So what is going on here? Uh, the Bible says, and these are later parts of the Bible, especially uh, John and 1 Timothy They're referring back to everything that came before, and they're fully aware of the burning bush incident. They're aware of the Sinai revelation where God came down on the mountain. And yet they're still saying, Look, nobody's ever seen God. You can't even see. He's invisible, he's in an unapproachable light. So, what's, but people did see God. What did they see? They saw an angel, they saw a fire, they heard a still small voice. Elijah heard a still small voice. That was God, but God wasn't physically there. Or how about the voice and the dove when Jesus was baptized? That was what, how people experienced God or the prophets. And so this is a very important concept to grasp that when God works through an agent, that agent can speak as if he or she is God. And how somebody treats that agent, God considers that as how you treat him. All right, so let's talk about deputies. We talked about messengers. Let's talk about deputies. A deputy is a person appointed as a substitute with power to act. I think that is just such a great definition for what it is I'm trying to get across to you this evening. A deputy is a a person appointed as a substitute with power to act. So if you deputize someone, that person stands in for you in a situation, in a sense, Humanity itself is already deputized. We've already been called by God right from creation to stand in for him as his rulers. Genesis one twenty six says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. You see how he talks about image and likeness and then he says immediately right afterwards, let them have dominion and it goes on from there. Because we're made in God's image, we are able to have dominion. And God wants humanity to have dominion over the earth. Psalm 8.3 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man or what is humanity, that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. This psalm refers back to Genesis 1, 26. I really appreciated the thoughts of Peter Gentry in his Kingdom Through Covenant book when he wrote, the term image indicates that Adam, that's the Hebrew word for human, Adam has a special position and a status as king under God. I think this is just huge. To be a human, according to the creation account, is to have a special status as king under God. Humans rule as a result of this royal status. The term to rule, Radah, in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, is particularly true of kings, as Psalm 72, 8 illustrates. Also, the term to subdue, Kavash, especially speaks of the work of a king. Further confirmation comes from Psalm 8, which... Verses 5 through 8 constitute a word-by-word commentary and meditation on Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Psalm 8, 5, which says, You have made him a little less than the gods. You have crowned him with glory and honor is a commentary on Genesis one 26a. Let us make mankind in our image and according to our likeness. Note in particular that the terms in Hebrew for crown, glory, and honor are all royal terms. This shows that the psalm writer understood image to speak of royal status. In other words, from the beginning, our destiny as humankind is to be God's deputies, to be God's imagers who carry out dominion on God's behalf. This makes even more sense once you start to think about how images worked in the culture of the world when Genesis was written. In the time when Genesis was written in that part of the world, kings would set up images. We call them idols. Uh, you remember Nebuchadnezzar set up this huge image of himself and how he was so great, had everyone bow to it. This is something that was done. Once again, quoting from the Kingdom Through Covenant book, which writes, Hans Walter Wolf expresses that matter, that matter well. In the ancient East, the setting up of the king's statue Was the equivalent to the proclamation of his dominion. See, that's not a connection I would have made, but that was obvious to ancient people. You have a statue of yourself, that means you have dominion over the area where you have the statue, over the sphere in which the statue was erected. When in the 13th century BC, the Pharaoh Ramesses II had his image hewn out of rock at the mouth of the Nahr el Keb on the Mediterranean north of Beirut, the image meant. He was the ruler of this area. Accordingly, man is set in the midst of creation as God's statue. Whoa. I think that's that's a really powerful point, right? Humankind is supposed to be the image of God. God puts his own image, and we're not stone statues, we're moving statues. We're, We're images of God that are like animated and alive and autonomous, and yet... The consequence of this way of thinking about it is that we have an obligation to our Creator to represent His interests and His dominion, not our dominion alone. He goes on, Humans are evidence that God is Lord of creation, but as God's steward, I think that's a really good word for this, He also exerts His rule, fulfilling His task not in arbitrary despotism, but as a responsible agent. His rule and His duty to rule are not autonomous, they are copies. Man is the divine image. As servant king and son of God, mankind will mediate God's rule to the creation in the context of covenant relationship with God on the one hand and with the earth on the other. So building this out a little bit, God works through these deputies or agents or representatives and it's not just human beings. It's not just us. Remember it said, let us make humanity in our image. Right? There's, there's more than just one individual there in view. So let's look at four categories. God's deputies. See, I got a little sheriff's uh, deputy badge there in the background. And uh, we've got the divine council. We have judges, priests, and kings. The divine council was given the commandment by God to oversee the various nations of the world Except for Israel. Israel, according to Deuteronomy 32, was for Yahweh himself. And the the other nations were apportioned according to the number of the sons of God. Then you have the judges. Right before the period of the kings, we had the period of the judges. These were individuals handpicked by God to represent him, to do his will, to carry out justice, to rescue the people, to be God's deliverer or saviors of the people, Um, And then later on in Israel, once there was already a king, there were still judges. There were still people that you would go to for decisions. Then, of course, we have the priests, and they stand in for God to the people. And then the kings, what are the kings to do? They're to enforce God's way of life, which at that time was called uh, Torah, the law. That's what the king was supposed to do, is to enforce the law that people would live by that in the land, but what about the ultimate? The ultimate ideal for God's deputy, God's ruler, is found in Isaiah eleven two, 2, where we read, And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth this is such a great description right of a human being who does God's will as a ruler as somebody who's exercising authority stewardship representation Uh, This, of course, is a messianic prophecy. We'll get to the Messiah in a little bit. But I want to move on to my next point, which is that now because these various agents of God represent him, the Bible occasionally, not all over the place, but occasionally calls them gods. And this is really weird. We don't have this in, in America. Well, we have American Idol, but that's just... I think a secondary use of the word idol, right? But we don't really have this idea of calling humans gods in this kind of way. Let me say it again. Because these various agents of God represent him, the Bible calls them Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for God, capital G, or lowercase g, God, or gods. So we have something similar to this in our culture. We have the police. And if uh, the police come and knock on your door... They don't say, "Officer Brown, open up." What do they say? Police. Police. But that's not the police. That's just one. It's just one officer. So they're they're claiming to repre- they're, they're claiming their identity on the basis of who they represent, not on the basis of who they are individually. And then uh, the FBI, of course, the FBI, uh, bursts into the back room of the restaurant where the shady. Crimes are being committed, and they shout, FBI, right? They don't, uh, they don't say, oh, I'm Agent Scully, and I'm here to arrest you. No, they shout, FBI, and they, that's what they put on the backs of those little windbreakers they wear, at least on TV. Uh, who knows if those happen <laughs> like that in real life? And uh, you notice they don't have names on each one. They're just like, collectively, we are FBI, and that's what you need to know. They're not the FBI. Each one individually is not the FBI, Each one individually is a representative or an agent, FBI agent of the FBI. Uh, So we have this in our culture a little bit. We also have the power of attorney, very similar kind of idea where somebody can sign over authority for another person to act on their behalf. And so this is how God has chosen to do things. Let's look at some of these examples. Let's look at the divine counsel first. Psalm 8:5, we already had seen it. I didn't really comment on it, but it says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. This phrase, heavenly beings, is actually just the Hebrew word Elohim. And in Hebrews 2:7, it says, You made him, where this is quoted, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. So we see a nice, very simple equation here where two parts of the Bible are saying the same thing using different words. And that's a really helpful way to figure out synonyms (laughs) when you you have this. And so Elohim can be translated God, can be translated gods, can be translated heavenly beings, or angels. And that's important because our word God doesn't do all that. Our word God is more limited than all, all of this flexibility or fluidity, as they call it. Here's another example, Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now he's going to talk to the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. You get the impression that the whole world is a mess. Injustice is reigning supreme rather than justice. And that these gods are really bad at their job. And then we get to verse 6. I said, You are gods. There it is again. Sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So that's Psalm 82. God had apportioned these other nations to the realm of these other gods or sons of God, as they're called in other places, and they did a bad job. And so the psalmist is saying, arise, God, go take the nations, you know, go do something, you know, fix this problem. But once again, these are angelic beings or spiritual beings that are being called Elohim or Elim as gods. Um, Then we have the judges. Well, it depends on what Bible translation you're reading. You might not ever see this. But it is, it is there. Um, the judges, within the law of Moses, the judges are actually called gods. Totally weird, right? So this is Exodus uh, 7.1 first. We'll look at Moses himself. The ESV says, And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. I'm here to tell you that is a totally dishonest translation. This word like is not there in the Hebrew, which is why the New American Bible translates it. The Lord answered Moses, see, I have made you a God to Pharaoh and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. That's what it actually says. It doesn't say I've made you like God. (laughs) Like God can mean a lot of things, (laughs) but I made you God to Pharaoh is what it actually says. God can make somebody else a God if that person functions in that role of God. To someone else, it doesn't mean that he's like somehow challenging Yahweh as the supreme God, right? We we all we all believe Moses is still just a guy, right? He's just still just a human being. All right, let me show you a couple other quick examples. Exodus twenty-one verse five: But if the slave plainly sl- says, "I love my master, my wife, and my children," I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. The NET New English Translation, instead of saying she shall bring him to God, says he shall bring him to the judges. <laughs> what? Well, it's a long-standing tradition in English translations to translate this word "judges," and the ESV was somewhat embarrassed about that, and they're like, "Oh, let's just call it God because that's what it says in the Hebrew." They were inflexible. Whereas the word Elohim was being flexible, the translators being inflexible, they were like, let's just get rid of this and uh, put God in. But in fact, it is uh, very commonly in older translations, and the NET is a more recent translation than than that, translated judges. And uh, so we see it also in chapter 22, verse 8. This is the ESV again. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God. To show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. So that doesn't make any sense. What does that mean? How do you come near to God? Well, what about the other translation? If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. Right? It makes perfect sense. So, and this is the New American Standard 2020 edition that's translating it judges. So it's, it's actually a newer version than the ESV, where once again, the word God is translated as judges in a English Bible. So why is that? Why would would we translate the word God judges? Because the judges were there to stand in for God. They were the ones that were to carry out God's justice if you got robbed, or if you wanted to make a permanent contract. Uh, Then we also have priests, another one of God's deputies, Uh, Now, I don't have a verse in the Bible where a priest is actually called God, but I think this is pretty self-explanatory in the sense that the role of a priest is an intermediary. The priest represents the people to God and represents God to the people. I mean, that's just what priests do in any religion. So they stand in for God on earth. For example, when people come to bring sacrifices, they bring the sacrifice to the priest, but they, what do they think they're doing? I'm bringing this sacrifice to God. But the priest is the one who receives it, who cuts it, who turns it into smoke and sends it up into the sky, right? And then they have a meal together, depending on what kind of sacrifice it is, or if it's a grain offering, it's a little simpler, I think. <laughs> but uh, you know the priest stands in for God as well. And then you have the kings. Did you know that Israelite kings are at least twice called gods in? The Old Testament, interesting. Here's the first one, Psalm 45, verse one. My heart is moved with a good theme. Hmm. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are the most handsome of the sons of mankind. Seems, sounds like a good-looking king. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Verse three, strap your sword on your thigh, mighty one. In your splendor and majesty, and in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. What in the world is going on here? Verse 2, right? We have this you happening. You, your, you, your, 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 and so on. This is all talking to to the king. This is not talking to God. This is talking to the king. So like your arrows are the king's arrows. Uh, Let your right hand teach you awesome things. The king, the king, the king, under you, and so on. And then he says, your throne, God. So he's been talking to the king this whole time. So it doesn't make sense to say in verse 6, now he's switching to talk to God. And if you do think he's now switching to talk to God, you've got a real problem in verse 7. Because now God has a God. So what's going on here is he's calling the king God in this lesser, secondary, representative sense. But at the same time, recognizing that as elevated and exalted as this king is, he still has a God. Who's over him? I wanted to read you a little statement about this from the Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament, which reads, the punctuation and syntax of the Masoretic text, that's the Hebrew, support the reading, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A word of prophecy concerning the perpetual nature of the king's rule. Perhaps the most prominent difficulty for reading Elohim as vocative, that's uh, O God, is the earthly king being addressed as God or a divine one. The term Elohim, finally, has a great deal of fluidity in the Hebrew scriptures. Being used variously of heavenly beings, we already looked at that, Psalm 8, 5, Judges, Psalm 82, 1 and 6, Moses, Exodus 7, 1, and the specter of Samuel, 1 Samuel 28, 13. Thus, I agree with those who opt for the traditional view. Now, some others have argued that We should translate this as God is your throne rather than your throne, O God. But look, based on the context and like talking about you, 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 and you are mighty and you, O God, and so on, this seems to fit better to say that the the psalmist is calling the king God. The Zonervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary by uh, John Walton says, the NIV capitalizes God, suggesting that the psalmist turns the address to God at this point. However, throughout the context, the king is the addressee. In what sense can the king be called God? By virtue of his divine appointment. The king in the ancient Near East stood before his subject as a representative of the divine realm. Look, this is not like you. I'm trying to convince you. This is, this is just a fact. Ancient people in that part of the world around that time, outside of Israel... We're not even talking about the Bible right now. We're talking about just ancient people around. They looked at their kings as gods, not because they were immortal or couldn't die, but because they represented another god, right? So an Assyrian official writes to his king, the well-known proverb says, man is a shadow of a god. The king is the perfect likeness of the god. The Egyptian said he, The first, around the year 1300 BC, addressed the future rulers of Egypt. You are like divinities. A king is counted among the gods. Egyptian texts often refer to the king as God. While the king of Egypt was thought to be divine, this was not the case in Mesopotamia or Israel. In Israel, he was adopted as God's son. In fact, the term gods, Elohim, is used of priests, who function as judges in the Israelite temple judicial system, Exodus 21, 6, 22, 8, 9, and so on. So what is going on here in Psalm 45? The NET Bible helps us understand it. The king here is clearly the addressee. Rather than taking the statement at face value, many prefer to amend the text because the concept of deifying the earthly king is foreign to ancient Israelite thinking. However, it is preferable to retain the text and take this statement as another instance of royal hyperbole that permeates the royal psalms because the Davidic king is God's vice-regent on earth. That's an important phrase there. The psalmist addresses him as if he were God incarnate. And this is not even talking about Jesus. This is just some ancient Israelite king and... The, the poet, I mean, actually, if you read Psalm 45 all the way through, he's getting married. There's, there's a queen, and it's, it's, it's obviously not talking about uh, Jesus in its original context, okay? Uh, I think it can apply to Jesus in a secondary sense, as in a foreshadowing uh, type sense, as we'll see in a, a few minutes here. But originally, this king is just like doing really well at life, and the poet is coming up with the best stuff to say at court. Uh, and what is he saying? He's saying, oh, you, you're you God. But then he says, but you have a God as well. And so he's addressing him as if he were God incarnate. God energizes the king for battle and accomplishes justice through him. A similar use of hyperbole appears in Isaiah 9-6, where the ideal Davidic king of the eschaton is given the title Mighty God. Very similar kind of thing. So let's go to Isaiah 9-6 now. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it talks about the government being on his shoulder and so on, and that the zeal of Yahweh will bring this to pass. So Isaiah 9-6, we already looked at this as a, as a name, but now we want to dig a little deeper and consider what is another way of thinking about this phrase El Gibor or Mighty God and what could that possibly mean? Because we understand this to refer to Jesus. So we're going to hold Jesus out of it for a second, but we're, we're, we're going to come back to Jesus shortly. Once again, the NET Bible says, There is a great debate over the syntactical structure of the verse. No subject is indicated for the verb he called. If all the titles that follow are ones given to the king, then the subject of the verb must be indefinite. One calls. However... Some have suggested that one to three of the titles that follow refer to God, not the king. For example, the traditional punctuation of the Hebrew text suggests the translation and the wonderful advisor, the mighty God, called his name, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this is a translation issue. It's a legitimate translation issue. Uh, the NET Bible is not some Weird, out-there Bible. It's a mainstream Bible put out by the Dallas Theological Seminary people, overwhelmingly evangelical in its theology, and yet it's saying, well, this is, this is another translation possibility. But what if that translation possibility is wrong? And the, the, Isaiah 9-6 really is calling this human mighty God. What could that possibly mean? El Gabor, that's the word translated, uh, words translated mighty God, is an attributive adjective, though one might translate God is a warrior or God is mighty. Scholars have interpreted this title in two ways. A number of them have argued that the title portrays the king, this is the key part, the king as God's representative on the battlefield, whom God empowers in a supernatural way. They contend that this sense seems more likely in the original context of the prophecy They would not suggest that having read the New Testament, we might in retrospect interpret this title as indicating the coming king's deity, but it is unlikely that Isaiah or his audience would have understood the title in such a bold way. Psalm 45.6 addresses the Davidic king as God because he ruled and fought as God's representative on earth. Ancient Near Eastern art and literature pictured God's training kings for battle, bestowing special weapons, and intervening in battle. According to Egyptian propaganda, the Hittites described Rameses II as follows, No man is who is among us. It is Seth, great of strength, but all in person. Not deeds of a man are these his doings. They are of one who is unique. According to proponents of this view, Isaiah 9-6 probably envisions a similar kind of response. When friends and foes alike look at the Davidic king in full battle regalia, when the king's enemies oppose him on the battlefield, they are, as it were, fighting against God himself. Now look, I know I'm reading to you a lot, okay? I've realized that. And I'm doing that for a couple of reasons. One is because this is so weird that I fear if I just told you what I have discovered and belief, you would say, you're just making that up, man. You're just, you're just making that up because you know there are a couple of places in the New Testament where Jesus is called God, and so you're just, you're just coming up, you're conjuring up this wild idea that the word God is actually flexible enough to apply to human beings. So I'm being very careful to cite sources of people who disagree with my theology so that you see that nobody's making this up. This is actually a real phenomenon that occurs. And my last source that I want to cite as far as my initial point that humans can be called gods or others can be called gods other than God himself is Jesus. He's my, he's my last source on this that I want to make this point. Jesus himself talked about God in this secondary way. John 10:33. the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, I am God, and your pathetic stones can't hurt me. No, that's not what he said, is it? Like, why didn't he just say that? No, he didn't say that. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So what do we have going on here? They think Jesus is claiming to be God. Jesus responds by saying, Well, t- doesn't it say in the law that I said you are gods? And if, if anyone if, they, if those who receive the word of God can be called gods, then what's the big deal? So Jesus' defense is, hey, God could be used in this other way where it's not infringing on Yahweh as the one true God because we're talking about people who receive his word and carry out his word. And that's been Jesus' whole ministry, everything he's done. As he says, even right here, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And he says, he's doing the works of my Father. Jesus is that quintessential human being, like it says in Genesis one twenty six: let us make man in our image let, you know, so that they will rule. Jesus is that representative steward who is standing in and representing God. All right, so what about Jesus? What about Jesus? That's a good question. All right. Over 1,300 times in the New Testament, the word God applies to the Father. 1,300 times, that's a lot, <laughs> right? 1,300. But what about Jesus? Is Jesus called God? We saw uh, messengers and rulers are called gods. What about Jesus? If Moses is called God, Exodus 7.1, I already showed you that, and Jesus is a prophet like to Moses, I would argue Jesus, like it says in Hebrews, is way better than Moses, then Jesus should be called God. If messengers are called gods, Jesus brings God. The ultimate message of the good news. If the judges are called God, Jesus is the judge of everyone, right? He's the ultimate judge. If the priests stand in for God, what about Jesus, who is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek in heaven itself, the holiest place imaginable, right next to God? Then, yeah, that makes sense. What, what about the kings? It, you know, this, this Davidic king who's getting married in Psalm 45 is getting called God? Jesus is the Davidic king. Jesus is the king of all other kings. So in all these senses, Jesus like, checks every box, like, yep, check, judge, prophet, messenger, king, and so on. And not only does he check all the boxes, he outperforms all of the previous examples. So I would say that actually if Jesus is not called God, I would, I would, I would be suspicious. I'd be like, wait a second, that's weird. And so in fact, what we see in Hebrews one eight is that Jesus is called God. Hebrews one seven says, of the angels he says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That I think refers to the burning bush. You remember how we started? I talk about how there was an angel in the bush, and people get all confused. They're like, oh, is God's like God's avatar or something? No, no, it says it's an angel. Just don't complicate it. Okay, it's an angel, but speaking as if that person is God. Uh, because it's, it's God's minister. So the angels are his his ministers, his servants, verse 8. But of the son, he says, "Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness; therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions." So what's going on here? What's going on here? the author of Hebrews is making the argument that Jesus is superior to the angels, right? To the angels, he says, oh, you guys are like winds and ministers, right? You're, you're, you're winds and ministers. That sounds cool, I guess. But of the Son, he says, you're throne, oh God, right? So the point, the, the rhetorical point is to elevate Jesus above the angels, but not in a sense of Uh, His substance, but in the sense of his authority, because he's talking about his throne. He's not saying that you are made of divine stuff. He's saying, no, you have a throne that is forever and ever, and yet, still, as high and elevated as Jesus could be with the term God, he still has a God who is over him and superior to him. Alright, now, once again, lest you accuse me of making all this up, I want to conclude by showing you dictionary definitions. In an earlier version of this presentation, I started with the dictionary definitions and everybody I think pretty much fell asleep. So I think like right now, if people are already asleep anyhow, like this, this won't hurt them, right? But, if, uh, but, but I, I really think this is so important because look, I found seven dictionaries. I know, that's a lot. Hebrew dictionaries, Greek dictionaries, some of them are absolutely state of the art, the best that you could buy, right? And others are freebie ones. And and These are all the dictionaries that I have. And I'm just looking up the word God, and I'm going to be very brief, and then we'll be done. I want to show you what they say, because they all talk about this secondary sense in which God can apply to humans. Are you ready? Never been so excited to look at a dictionary. All right. First up, the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, also called the Halot. Under definition three, B, for the word Elohim, the word God, says Moses. In God's place. For Aaron. Moses for Pharaoh. That's the definition for the word God. One of the definitions is Moses. <laughs> the Brown Driver and Briggs Hebrew lexicon. Definition 1A. Rulers, judges. This is my favorite part. Either as divine representatives at sacred places or as reflecting divine majesty and power. So the word God applies to a representative, or one who reflects God's majesty and power. And then under definition 2D, it says, a God like one, Moses, in relation to Aaron, in relation to Pharaoh, the messianic king, O God. Then it references uh, Psalm 45, 7. Eerdman's Dictionary, the most frequent... Generic name for God in the Old Testament. Then it goes on a little bit from there. It says, A nuance. This is towards the end of the definition. You've got to dig for these. A nuance of great importance also underlines the limited use of Elohim for living humans. Moses will be as God slash a God to Aaron and Pharaoh. And the king can be called God in comparison to his subjects. Psalm 45. Kolenberger slash Mount's concise Hebrew Aramaic Dictionary says, Any person characterized by greatness or power Mighty one, great one, judge. Bauer, Danker, Arndt, Gingrich, Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, which we usually just call the BDAG because it's shorter. Uh, definition four says, that which is non-transcendent, but considered worthy of special reverence or respect, under letter A, of humans. Uh, humans are called gods in the Old Testament also. Exodus 7.1, 22.27, of Caesars. This is going outside the Bible. To other Greek literature, yeah, Caesar's called God for honors accorded. They have another example of a, a physician who is addressed as God, a high official, or of a benefactor. Freiburg Greek le- lexicon definition five figuratively. Uh, this is a, a New Testament Theos of persons worthy of reverence and respect as magistrates and judges. Gods John ten thirty four. And last of all, Thayer's Greek lexicon. Definition four, Theos is used of whatever can in any respect be likened to God or resembles him in any way. Hebraistically equivalent to God's representative or vicegerent of magistrates and judges. John ten thirty four, Psalm 82, and so on. So I know, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Sean, that's great, but what is a vicegerent? Why'd you ask that? A vicegerent is not a word I use every day, but it's the perfect word for what we're talking about. And I think it will be a nice way to to end this this, uh, little exploration. A vicegerent is a person exercising delegated power on behalf of a sovereign ruler. A person regarded as an earthly representative of God, or a God, especially the Pope. So we're going to... We'll set the Pope to the side. That's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about within the Bible's times itself. So somebody can be called God because they are a person exercising delegated power. Let's review. Number one, God works through agents, whether messengers or deputies. Number two, when messengers speak for God, they speak as if they are God because they are his agents. Number three, God's original intention for making humanity in His image was that we would rule over the world for Him. Number four, God's representatives include His divine counsel, judges, priests, and kings. Number five, because God's agents represent Him, the Bible occasionally calls them God's uppercase or God's lowercase, depending on the translation. Number six, as God's supreme agent, the Messiah is properly called God, in this secondary sense, Hebrews 1.8. And number seven, out of the seven dictionaries I checked, all of them recognize that a human can be called God. All right, so next time we're going to look at a bunch of texts in which some would say Jesus is called God. We're going to analyze them and take a look at them as we continue through our class, One God Overall. Well, that brings this episode to a close. If you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment, you can do that by going to restitudio.org and finding episode 417, Jesus, God's Agent. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, Josh Diebel wrote in on the episode from last week, and he said, Loving the series, does Jesus ever use God's name? I remember him calling God Abba, but wasn't sure if he ever said his name. Thanks. Well, Josh, this is a little bit of a challenging question because we only have what the New Testament says about Jesus, and as far as the New Testament says, we don't find any incident of Jesus or anyone else saying God's name, but that doesn't necessarily mean they didn't. The Jewish custom of substituting Adonai, or Lord, for God's proper name, Yahweh, was apparently already in effect by the time of Christ. And I say that based on two pieces of evidence. One would be the Septuagint, which is a translation of the Old Testament done a couple of centuries before Christ, where they regularly substitute Kyrios, the word for Lord, in for Yahweh. And then the other would be the Targums, which were the Aramaic translations used in synagogue services, and there, too, we see a substitution for God's proper name. So it's, it's very difficult to say, did people know God's name? Well, if they read Hebrew, it's spelled right there. I mean, it's plain as day in the Hebrew scriptures. But did they say it? I don't know, to be honest. The closest we find with Jesus is John 17, verse 6, where he says, "...I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world." Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And then again in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled." then once again in verse 26, I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Perhaps not surprisingly in the gospel of John, we find God's name used in a secondary or metaphorical sense to represent his identity. At least that's how I'm taking this here. So, I don't think appealing to John 17 is particularly helpful in answering the question you asked as to whether or not Jesus used God's proper name. So, I, 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 would, I would tend to say no, but it's, it's, it's too hard to know for sure what Jesus did in his private prayer life, for example, uh, what Jesus did when reading the Hebrew scriptures. Did he say the name, or did he substitute Adonai? or something else in the place of God's name, Hashem. So, in conclusion, I'm leaning towards no here, Josh, but thanks for asking the question. If anybody else has, has information on this, uh, please feel free to come in and comment. We'd love to learn more about the topic of God's name in the first century. If you have any sources that you can refer us to, I'd certainly appreciate that. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so at restitudio.org. We'll catch you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.